0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinergogo's
1: Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Wine, Sunny, Go, Go. You're on 3 I It's Chris KP here. Dr Shane is not around today, but he has asked that we uh, keep the studio warm for him. So we're going to be as warm, uh, we're going to be as... Uh, as Metabolically active as we need to be, and hopefully you'll help us get it through that. Uh, the good news is that it's not going to be that difficult. And by the way, thank you, Chicken Life. Uh, speaking of warmth, we have three wonderful guests joining us in the studio today. We have Rachel here pushing our buttons. Uh, Livy is here feeding our Twitter feed, and we are in very good hands, my friends, because I am joined in the studio by Dr. Susie. Hello, how are you?
0: Hello, happy New Year. I oh. am very good, except that I'm back from holiday. You know. I'm did
1: you now did you break your holiday just to come back into the studio? Just unfortunately
0: so not, but I ah. wish, you know, that would be a good excuse to come back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, real life is not a good excuse, is it? That's it's funny not, that, isn't it? Not. You come back
0: I, I blame it on my dog, really. I have a dog at home, you know, and so I had oh. a good reason to come back.
1: Oh, that's a very Some good reason Some say the only reason, back. you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that is almost the best reason in the world to come back. Well, it's good to see you. Good to see you back in. And it's good to be back in the studio as well. It's my first time for the year as well. Uh, now, well, we've got, like I said, a lot of guests coming up, so we need to sort of make sure we don't uh, shortchange listeners on the, uh, the wealth of information that they have coming our way. So tell me, what have you seen in your uh, frantic recovery from, uh, from, from recreational leave? What have you seen in the world of science news?
0: I am so excited about this news. Like, I come back blasting I Actually, because today I want to talk about my two favorite things in combination, organoids and dogs. How great is that? That's very I mean, good. That's already pretty good, right? And I'm taking a chunk out of um, the life of one of my colleagues that was on the show recently, Flora. I'm um, talking about eyes. So I'm talking about eyes and organoids. Um, and I want to talk about a story from some researchers that looked at growing human eye retinas on chips or out of the body and then determined why humans can see all you know color vision as we do and compared to dogs who can't see that so for the people out there who don't know you know you should but for the people who don't know most mammals can't see all the colors dogs is my favorite one so they're my you know token animals to talk about they only can see blue and yellow so they see everything in the world in a blue and yellow spectra so you know, good dog toy manufacturers should make blue and yellow yeah. toys. So don't yes. buy the green ones. I was just thinking, <laughs> about, I was thinking about
1: toys I bought for dogs that were not blue and yellow at all. I
0: know, right? It's so stupid. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so dog manufacturers listen to the show, make blue and yellow toys. Anyway, there's a bit of mystery around how this happens, right? Because there's always a lot of... um mechanisms going on in our body while we grow up how we build this and the way we see color you know just from the basics we have these cones in our retinas and they come in three different sizes for humans and um, to say it in the size of clothing in small medium and large and the small sure. ones are blue so they're the same as in the dogs and then we have medium which are green and the large which are red and in some way our body has to determine at which point in time do we you know build and grow them to uh-huh. like red and green and there was a lot of speculation about this and a lot of, you know, people were thinking about how this is regulated and um, you know, were news out that this is thyroid hormone regulated and whatnot and whatnot. And it turns out it is not. It turns out there is a chemical in our body circulating that's called retinoic acid that they found. And depending on the values of, you know, the amount of retinoic acid in our bloodstream, um, that determines what color of cone we're basically producing what size of cone really yeah and so what they've what these researchers done is because they've built these you know retinas outside of the body they could just change the yeah. amount change the concentration of retinoic acid in these organoids and see what size of cone was was forming and that's amazing so, so they could, could basically you, tailor it
1: could you do it to a dog did you, you change I mean, its you vision?
0: could. I mean, you could basically transplant an eye into a dog in the future, but like, you know, I'm not sure if I, mean, I want that. Like,
1: it seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> I'm just asking hypothetically. Hypothetically, so, yeah. you could
0: build your little uh,
1: colour vision dog. <laughs> How very yeah. It's funny when I when you mentioned this the this, the this topic, my media thought was I thought we knew why that happened, but I then of course but it wasn't. I, but yeah. I had no memory of what the answer was.
0: And this is huh. super interesting, right? Because as we age, we have a lot of vision related issues. A yeah. lot of you know, there's a lot yeah. of vision related diseases that come with the degradation or de- degradation of our retina and of these cones and also with them you know growing over the time that we age so we get you know shift our vision towards the red spectra and it's really interesting to see how you can you know supplement this or you know how, how to influence this to maybe preserve this or treat diseases like that. This super fascinating.
1: Very nice. I
0: know. I know. Yeah, well done. I know. Yeah. I just want to have the little retinoic acid. You know, this it's a it's actually a, a molecule that's um, derived from vitamin A. So, like, you know, imagine you have, like, your little pill supplement that you can just feed your dog and suddenly <laughs> he can see all the colors and it's like, whoa, super trippy, like on an LSD trip.
1: Yeah, there are things you can feed animals to do that, but it's, it's inhumane. Don't, yeah, don't
0: yeah. do that at home. People inhumane out there, don't do it at home.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good advice. Uh, well, look, I had um, I had a bit of uh, good and bad news at the same time. Depending on where you come from, uh, I, I have a I have a bit of a botany background, so for me, it was kind of great, but also terrifying. So we need forests. Apart from anything else, we need forests because they help uh, slow and mitigate climate change. They absorb carbon, which is really good. Um, and of course, we've been clearing forests at an alarming rate for a very long time. So what, whatever we've got left is is important to us. So the interesting thing is that you know that's it is easy to say that but a forest is a complex thing. Yeah, they're super complex. It's, yeah, there's a lot going on inside there, uh, and it turns out that um, one. And if you if you cast your mind back, and I have fond memories of midday movies, watching old Tarzan movies from the, like the fifties.
0: <laughs> don't give your age away, Doctor Chris. I,
1: I feel I feel like it's uh, it's probably not going to surprise anyone. Um, they were even old movies then, though. <laughs> and, and you know, he would always, at some point, leap out of a tree, grab onto a vine, and swing through the forest. So vines. You uh, have like,
0: to make the sound when you say that. No, right I now. don't.
1: I really don't. <laughs> I think I feel oh I'm surprised i look I'm looking at a panelist who I thought would be shaking her head vigorously he's nodding her head vigorously <laughs> maybe I'll do it Tarzan later yeah, in the program yeah. maybe- maybe I won't, but we'll see we'll see but the point is those vines are real and they are actually pretty good at responding to uh higher temperatures uh than uh, than than trees. Oh right. Yeah. So then they're, they're a natural part of the ecosystem, but that's the problem: is they're okay with warmer conditions and lower rainfall, which is what you get in a lot of these these lower level forests, lower elevation forests. Um, than the trees are, which means so they're it. the
0: survivors. Really, they're
1: going. This is they're going. You want to warm it up and pull back on the <laughs> I'm rain? Here for it. No biggie. <laughs> so they're growing, and what the problem is that the balance gets knocked all out then, oh, and yeah. so they end up. Literally strangling the trees, like taking
0: over. Yeah,
1: which means that Oof. climate change—it's—it's it's one of those feedback loops. It's not just we've got trees and we need them to absorb more carbon than they're kind of able to. Now we're actually going to have fewer trees because of no, so the they, carbon. Oh no! Yeah. So yeah. So the that is really uh, it's one of those things, and it's just I'm sure. I mean, this is the, the the most recent in a very long line of it's worse than we thought moments. Yeah. Because we're playing with complex systems.
0: I feel like this is a little shop of horror moment. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: oh, I hadn't thought it, of that. It
0: just gets out of hand. I hadn't thought of that. T- too much fertilizer was used.
1: Too much fertilizer and too much human blood. Yeah. Um, yes. So <sighs> uh, one one more reason why we need to take care of our forests. Um, and why um, us being selfish is not good for anyone, including the trees.
0: Maybe we just need more Tarzans, you know, if they, like, dangle more and, like, rip them out eventually. But this is the thing.
1: Maybe we do, but this is one of the things that I remember from the movies. They never broke. <sighs> Though I know that he could do I anything know. on those vines.
0: I know. <laughs> the physics of that. Dr. Shane, if he would be here, he would tell physics us all about vines? the physics of vines right now. You he know. probably would, too. I think so. We
1: should ask him about that. Um, we're going to be, have, a, yeah, we have a break from him and put on a track, and we're going to come back with our very first guest who's going to tell us something terribly exciting about dogs. But also about bats, and also about uh, wind.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen,
2: hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: Welcome back everybody, you're on Einstein A Go Go, it's Chris K.P. here sitting in the uh, tepid chair for uh, Dr Shane. Uh, We're joined in the studio now by Emma Bennett who's a senior research officer and PhD candidate from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Hello Emma. G'day Chris, how you going? Very good, very good. Um, Now okay, when I look at your work there's so many bits in it that excite me but let's begin with the first thing that excites me which is dogs. Tell us what you do with these dogs.
3: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I started working with detection dogs about 20 years ago. So we were trying to uh, do a study to find out whether we could find birds or bats in a paddock. Uh, we did a little trial. I had a pet dog at the time and I was still a uni student. And so I went out there with my dog. Uh, we finished in a couple of hours and everybody else was there all day trying to find them, just the human surveyors. Nice. So Yeah, so I started,
1: so was, started then. So your pet dog, and by the way, I very happy about someone being able to use their pet at work that's extremely awesome um, had had your dog been trained to do this or was it just a case of he go find stuff
3: well I got a phone call so I had about six weeks to get her trained for this wow. but she was we were quite active in the uh, training dog training sure. circle I had another dog who was born deaf so ah. he required quite a lot of uh, training so my Hearing dog was very well trained
1: and was almost a support dog for my other dog. So oh, that's it was... delightful. We had a deaf dog when I was a kid. Um, great little dog, great little dog. Very interesting and, and very very informative for me as a child too, uh, I think. Taught me heaps about dog yeah. training. Yeah. Um, so just out of interest, th- from that dog to the others, yep. uh, is there a particular breed we look for or is it just something that can be bought out of any dog?
3: No, nah, look, probably the best dogs are the ones that get taken to the pound because they're way too naughty to be in a backyard. So <laughs> sure. a good working dog that really yep. likes a ball. Yes, probably the main thing. So they need to have enough stamina to work throughout the day.
1: Okay. So you're looking for animal carcasses with these dogs? Yes. Why?
3: So wind turbines, um, as wonderful as they are for climate change, they're not completely environmentally neutral. Mm. So there is a collision element, as there is with any structure in the sky, like buildings or even roads. Mm. There is a, a collision. But because it is a clean, green, renewable energy, one of the things that this industry actually does is quantify what their impact is on the negative so that they can look at ways to mitigate or offset or, or you know, try and not have it happen at all. Preferably, it's, Is it just,
1: and this is enough, but I'm interested, is it just impact? Is it literally just animals flying into wind turbines or is there some other disturbance that they make that affects the the ecology?
3: No, look, primarily it is collision. Okay. Um, small microbats are, are actually attracted to turbines and we're not really sure why. It may have something to do with insect dynamics. We're not really shown there's a lot of work happening overseas to figure this out but small microbats seem to be attracted so hmm. uh, that is a problem but for other birds it is just they seem to be flying through the area and we've got a large wind farm it's hard to avoid you know 100 turbines you need to fly through the wind farm and some birds they don't watch where they're flying because
1: hmm.
3: there's not typically something in front of them so yeah. a lot of birds will look down at the ground when they're flying
1: so i'm i'm presuming that there must be situations where the, the places that are good to have wind turbines are also places that birds like to be and bats like to be?
3: Yeah, well, we we found out about the issue with birds just over 20 years ago in, in the US where they, there was a, a tunnel in, near Altamont Pass in California where the wind just... So it's like a, like a valley, yeah. yeah, and and yeah. so they crossed the entire valley with wind turbines, oh, wow. but it was also a major migratory route for birds. Um, and the American bald eagle has its own legislation, so you're not allowed to impact or kill any of them. It's it's wow got its own legislation in the US. So that quickly raised the attention on a global scale because it was quite a disaster location for it.
0: So when you talk about eagles already, um, I'm really interested, is it just like a single type of bird that you look in at or is it like across the board from like, you know, little sparrows that fly into wind turbines all the way to like prey birds because they definitely look down on the floor, right?
3: Yeah, so prey birds do look down. So we do see a higher impact with raptors than what we do with other species. Um, some night migrating birds can be impacted as well because birds do fly at night even though people often don't think they are. they do. Uh, So we do see a a range of birds, like you would do if you're driving along the car. You you mostly see magpies, um, but then you see the occasional other thing, and and it's similar. We do see a lot of magpies um, at at turbines. I think they dare each other to fly through the blades, though.
0: (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of, <laughs> of listeners who are happy about the magpies and being hit by winter. Oh, they're actually
3: my
1: favourite bird. I'm a big fan of the magpie too, and and in fact, the, the way you describe that is the reason I'm a fan. I just love that attitude. Yeah, but yeah, I think that's fantastic.
3: Cyclists might disagree with that <laughs>
1: attitude. Yeah. I, I think they definitely young male magpies. You know what I am? I saw a cyclist the other day with you know with the uh, cable ties sticking out of the helmet everywhere, and I just thought the magpies have won.
3: <laughs> I think you saw me. That's usually <laughs> me. Well, it's like that meme where they say the most dangerous animal in. A australia and they show a magpie i
1: uh, love it i think they're great so um okay so I, I guess the obvious question is i mean this all sounds like well, almost intractable it's like we want to have turbines but they do really bad stuff is there a way of making this palatable can we find a reasonable balance
3: yes so there's a couple of different solutions so we'll start with the easy solution which is, Good. is bats so um as i mentioned earlier wind turbines kill bats but they don't have to so with small bats particularly they're killed at low wind speeds only overnight and only in summer because our bats aren't active in winter. It's too cold. So for about four months of the year, below a wind speed of around seven metres per second is when we see all of our bat collisions. Now, Mm. wind turbines reach maximum energy capacity at around 10 metres per second. So it's, it's at that low end. So if we just change the speed at which the turbines start spinning under the conditions that bats fly... We reduce the collisions by 50, 60, and up to 96% in some trials. So we have one wind farm that's operating under these conditions in Australia. Uh, It's very small, it's only 14 turbines. Uh, I would like to see all of our turbines operate under these conditions in Australia. I think it's a really simple
1: solution. Are there, I mean, apart from, you know, obviously the the information's there now. the is there but are there regulatory expectations on wind farms to do that kind of thing are there other regulations
3: so there's quite they do quite a lot of extensive um pre-work where they're sort of trying to work out what bats are in the area what bats are at risk and then following up they do a couple of years of mortality monitoring which is mm. where the dogs come into it and they spend a few years walking under the turbines so we can quantify it with a, a degree of certainty what's being impacted and what quantity um, but No, a lot of the research has been done in the Northern Hemisphere Mm -hmm. and as with everything in Australia, they're always wanting to have Australian data and Australian research. So we're we're trying to. We've got one published study about curtailment, which is changing the wind speed of the turbines in Australia now. And so that has been getting a lot of traction with government regulators. They're just often a little bit slow to take up some of the research. So we're working really hard to sort of change the way planning is is issued
1: well that's because that's a big change if if there are already regulations then you know sure a new one's a new thing but at least there's a system there's a place to put there's a mechanism if you like but if you if you really haven't got that kind of um regulatory framework already you've got to build that
3: yeah and it's quite simple so the like the international finance corporation has got this as a condition on wind farms that they're building in developing countries so i work in southeast asia and some of those wind farms there they're built with this curtailment strategy in place so they mm. don't operate when there could be a risk to bats and then the wind farm has to prove the opposite say bats aren't flying at this time so mm. we can change those conditions whereas in australia we have it round the other way that we sort of a full operation and then we come in as consultants and try and say okay look under these conditions maybe we should turn them off but that's a lot harder than having them turned off initially yeah. and then allowing to slowly be turned back on under certain conditions so i think we really need to reverse it in australia and it would be the right thing to do.
1: Nice. That, it's interesting that you should put it like that because, again, I, I wonder if you if you had the "quote unquote" perfect wind farm that was doing exactly the, the, the right regulatory approach, at all the right systems in place, would it impact on their potential earnings?
3: So the one the trial we did in Portland, which was only about a fifty okay. percent um, reduction in bat mortality. It cost the company 0.09 percent of their annual revenue.
1: Seems like a small price to pay. So
3: it's a really small amount, <laughs> and even if we're looking at at sort of maximum operations, if it went for a long period of time, it's it'd probably be up to four percent of annual generation.
1: Okay, so yeah, that does seem really manageable. Yeah. And so my intractable problem appears to be not very seems to be tractable.
3: Is that a word, tractable?
1: Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. Yeah. And
3: that's what the IFC is asking. They're asking people to budget in their planning. So budget for, well, you know, 5% for bats and maybe 5% for birds when you're doing your planning. And then if you only lose 2%, you feel like you're winning.
1: Yeah, and it also sounds like, I mean, I've, I've the number of times I've heard people complaining or being concerned about putting a new wind farm in because of some impact, uh, it seems like it's okay. It's not, it's not an either-or, and that's a Yeah,
3: yeah no, we can actually work together. And, and whilst this is a solution for bats, we have... Um other solutions which are a little bit more complex for birds, um but certainly for our big raptors, there's mm. a wind farm in Tasmania that has a product called identify and it's it's basically facial re- recognition software that um, is scanning the sky and when it sees a bird, it can actually determine whether it's a wedgetail eagle or whether it's another bird nice and it can measure its flight path and look at whether it's going to be in risk and stop the turbines.
0: This is where they get their ticket when they fly too fast, right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, if you two magpies egging each other on, it's like, yeah, we know exactly who you are and what you were doing, Nigel. <laughs> Uh, yeah, wow. Uh, now, you, you let slip something before we came on air, which I thought was uh, extraordinarily courageous of you, and that was that you're close to completing your PhD?
3: Yes. So that's I right. haven't actually done my PhD in wind farms and wildlife, which I oh. should have, because I would have finished it four years ago. <laughs> went, <'cause laughs> I'm in my seventh or eighth year of a part-time PhD. Oh, wow. okay. um, but That I'm is actually, brave. Very yeah. brave. It's so brave. Concessioning, you know, I've been a single mum most of that time with a bunch of kids. So wow. Amazing. Um so, yeah, my PhD is actually evaluating the effectiveness of detection dogs when they're looking for rare
1: species. So that that was going to be my final question to you. When you are walking up on the stage with your floppy hat on to get your your, your PhD, are you going to have the dog with you? You've got to totally take one dog with you at least.
3: <laughs> Does the dog get a PhD
0: and too? And a floppy
1: hat.
3: Uh, well, there's so many dogs I've used as part <laughs> of my PhD. I wouldn't want to take my personal dogs because they are they would make amazing detection dogs, but... The two I've got a pet dogs now that are just ball obsessed, and you can't leave the house without throwing a ball for them. Okay, I know the feeling. <laughs> Make right. the ball blue and yellow, please.
1: Well, I'll be I'll be happy enough with the image of you getting the PhD and then running up to the dog park afterwards. I'll take that as an image that. Works yeah, well I
3: mean, that, there level. might be a few dogs in the audience cheering me on. There's been quite a few as part of my study. So we need dog taxes with the PhD hat on, please.
1: Yes, I think that's yeah. We can do that. Yeah, sure. Yes, <laughs> there's our request to you. All right. Thank you very much, Emma Bennett from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Thank you for coming in and joining us on Sunday Go Go. We'll be back with another guest soon. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. Uh, we're joined by Michael Muse, a PhD student from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne, who's going to tell us about, well, not just dark matter, but the search for dark matter, and how regional Victoria has a very important part to play. Before we get there, though, Mike, welcome. G'day, Chris. It's nice to meet you.
2: Why do we call it dark matter? Why do we call it dark matter? Uh, we can't see it. It doesn't interact with light, and based on everything we think we know about it, uh, it, it Has no real uh, interaction with us on any level, uh, except from some really weak interactions. And so it's everywhere, we
1: think, but we just can't see it at all. So there's loads of it out there. It's hard to detect, but it has an influence on the whole universe.
2: Exactly, yeah. So we think it actually would be right in this room right now, passing through us, millions of these particles (laughs) that we just can't see. But when we look out into space and we look at galaxies and how bright they are and how they spin, we know that there's this missing matter. There's five times the amount of stuff out in the universe that we just can't see.
1: Mm, Okay. Okay. So, tell us about – so, the name of the the project you're working on, if I've got this right, uh, is SABER. That's correct, yes. Which stands for? Uh,
2: That stands for sodium iodide. That's the uh, crystal type, mm-hmm. uh, with active background rejection. Bit of a mouthful. Uh, we love terrible acronyms in particle physics.
1: You're not alone. That's okay. Th- there, are two, there are two things that I need to pull out of that. One is the crystal bit, but I might... Let's just shelve that for a second. The other thing I wanted to pull out is that in my understanding is correct that you're working on the south version of this, and there's a twin experiment...
2: Yes, Yes. so Sabre is actually two experiments one uh, operating in, in the centre of Italy uh, under a mountain and the one we're constructing in install in Victoria here and the idea is to have uh, two experiments that are pretty much identical in, in both hemispheres uh, and so anything that would, be, uh, that would be caused by seasonal effects for example or anything that would vary across the hemispheres um, we'll be able to see that in our two experiments um, but anything sort of astrophysical uh, should be uh, unrelated and we won't see any of that very nice. And why stall? Why Stahl? Uh There was a, there was a good search for a, a good place uh, in Australia. There was some looks looking in in, in Tasmania um, back when it was first being conceived. But stall has this great active gold mine, um, ah. which is which is really really critical for this sort of work. Uh, so we can get a kilometer underground in there in the oh, wow. gold mine, uh, and that's where we can set up this experiment. Um, that and that's critical for searching for dark matter.
1: Okay, just out of interest, I'm picturing being a kilometre underground as a workplace, and I've worked in some pretty unfriendly cube farms, let's face it. But a
2: yeah. K okay, underground, is it, is it hot or is it cold? It's, it's hot, and okay. everyone tells you it's hot, and you get there, <laughs> and it's, you're stepping off a plane in Darwin, but it's even more humid. <laughs> oh, really? And it doesn't feel right. It, it's, it's, it feels hostile. I shouldn't be here.
1: Wow that's kind of that's kind of great actually in it i mean for me (laughs) from the outside i'm not having to do it okay um the other thing i want to ask about is the crystal bit because i don't know how that i mean when i read saber in the title of i'm like okay i understand that you've got these sodium iodide crystals but what do they do and why does that matter
2: yeah yeah great question um so these crystals are you can imagine them as, as a giant lump of salt okay um how, how big of,
1: are they the ones you're actually using?
2: they're about seven kilos, so
1: they'll oh, okay they are big yeah, yeah
2: yeah quite quite big, and we have seven of those that's okay. almost fifty kilos of crystal yeah. and they're single they're single lattice crystals, so they're perfectly perfectly constructed, very clear mm. very pure crystals of, of sodium and uh, iodine uh, together in this in this lattice and and so when when a particle passes through this, they have this really magical property that's really cool, uh, which is called scintillation um, oh it's a good title it, <laughs> that's it's good. a beautiful word um. And so when, when a particle you know, bounces off this crystal, when it scatters off one of the atoms in our crystals, it gives off this light, this, this scintillation light. Mm. And that's something we can detect with very sensitive detectors. I feel like this is the most expensive salt lamp I've ever talked about.
1: <laughs> are, are they really expensive?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Very, very expensive. Take a long time to grow. Three months to grow one oh, of these really? crystals. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: Also the most beautiful salt lamp
2: I've ever heard about.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like it probably offsets the um, Darwin on steroids environment, is to have incredibly <laughs> beautiful things around you.
2: Yeah, that's, it's it's kind of stressful when you're down there because they're, they're basically salt, so they will dissolve if they get any moisture or air oh, on them. Wow. So we keep them uh, purged with nitrogen, completely blanketed, uh-huh. in very pure nitrogen at all times. Um, you can't touch them with your, with your bare hands. So, so
1: the nitrogen feed for that, is that... Above ground or below ground? Where does that come from? Uh,
2: So uh, we'll have nitrogen tanks uh, underground in the lab with us and a a circulating system keeping a constant blanket uh, on these crystals
1: very and now you just you just hinted at something then which is important you hinted at future tense so yeah. how how up how ready is this experiment to to go
2: yeah i'd love to say that we're we're, we're gonna find dark matter tomorrow um but this this, <laughs> this experiment takes has taken a long time to build it's it's one of the biggest experiments actually probably the biggest experiment in particle physics for australia really um, so this is this uh-huh. is really pushing uh australia's uh particle physics uh, contribution um and so, yeah, we're, we're just finally getting access to this lab, lab space, which is really exciting. Um, we've been waiting for years to get down there, and we're just getting down there this year. Um, and so we're starting to build the constru- the, uh, complete the construction of this experiment over this next year. And when you're...
1: Okay, so I'm kind of... In my mind, I'm drawing really unwise parallels to, um, to radio uh, telescopes. So ap- apologies for that. But if the, uh, you detected a dark matter particle... How soon after it being there would you be able to detect it? Are we talking looking at data months down the track or is there an immediate thing that goes bing?
2: So, yeah, you'll see it immediately, but you won't know it's dark matter. And so it will take you months to realise it's dark matter. Dark matter, we we think it'll interact really rarely. Like, in each of these crystals, a couple of times a day, right? Mm. Um, For, like, us in this room, a couple of times a day Mm. sort of thing. Um, So... Whilst it's, it's, it's interacting, um, there's actually a bunch of other stuff that interacts with these crystals yeah. that makes it really hard to find this little needle in this haystack of all this extra noise of radiation um, and, and background uh, particles. And that's why we go so un- deep underground. That's to get rid of most of the, the radiation that we have up on the surface.
1: Yes, OK. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Um so when, let's just say when, in fact, in, in what would be both terribly exciting and anticlimactic, if on day one um, you find a dark matter particle, or on whatever day, and it's going to happen at some point, I'm sure of it, but when that happens, what, what do we do with that information?
2: Yeah. Right, so it's not going to be day one. Um, oh, well, not be that attitude. Yeah, it's going, to take, it's going to take two and a half years, uh, at oh, okay. least, of cumulative data to actually conclusively okay. say whether or not we're actually seeing dark matter. Um, and we're yeah, but if we did, after those two and a half years of live data taking, and we saw that was dark matter, uh, that would be pretty earth- earth-shattering. That would be groundbreaking. This, this is something we've been searching for in physics, in astrophysics and particle physics for over 70 years. Um, it's, it's a huge problem in our understanding of the universe, and, and just being able to see it uh, opens the doors uh, for working out what is it, how does it come about. How do we interact with it? Because um, we have all these great ideas, um, thousands and thousands of great ideas about what it is and how it could yes. interact. Um, but until we actually see it, we don't. We don't know.
1: Is there just again the when you describe where you have to be and why you're down there and, and, and finding the right places? Are there good times to be looking for dark matter, or is it just like get the right place, cross your fingers? Or are there good times of year or good times of
2: day? Yes, yeah, so that that really touches on like what we think dark matter is like in our galaxy so we think it's like this giant gaseous halo okay surrounding uh you know covering the entire galaxy we're passing through it all the time um and for our particular experiment we're actually looking for this really unique signature uh, of what dark matter looks like yes we think it'll scatter off of our crystals you know a couple of times a day Mm. um but we're actually we're doing a bit of a, of a, a trick here um we're making use of the fact that uh, we have this motion that we move through this this dark matter halo in our galaxy, as as the the sun itself orbits our galaxy in this mm. merry-go-round, uh, and then on top of that, uh, the Earth itself orbits the sun. Yeah. So you've got this this double orbiting system, um, and it's all moving through this wind of dark matter in our galaxy. Uh, and so you can imagine that in some parts of the year, uh, in June, for example, um, we're actually moving slightly faster into this wind. Ah, right. Oh,
1: wow. That's um, so interesting. That's such a cool. I'd never, i never sort of thought about that mattering before. Yeah,
2: right. Huh. And then so six months later, you, you're sort of moving sort of with the wind. So it's a little bit slower. Uh, so you, as, as you go around the year, you'll slightly see, you'll see slightly more dark matter in June. Or we expect to and and as you come back to December, you'll see slightly less because you're moving through that wind a bit slower, yeah. uh, and so that's that would be like a smoking gun signal for us. We don't actually need to see each individual dark matter interaction, um, but over a year if we see this this slightly varying rate of detection this this what we call an annual modulation, if we see that that signature uh, that's that's pretty indicative that we're seeing dark matter
1: and if you, if you were to identify um, you know a, a period of time or conditions in which you are much more likely, so it's we're five, six years down the track, you can go, it all seems to happen on July the 7th or whatever, um, if that were the case, it, is it helpful to focus your attention there and, and see more dark matter or is the act of seeing it at all, um, you know, the the, the the really important step?
2: Yeah. Uh, so we expect to see it throughout the entire year, yeah, every day. But uh, I think at this stage we, we would be just... Over the moon, just to see it at all. Okay. Right? Uh, once, once someone sees it once, um, that, that gives us indication of where other people can look. We can use different detection yeah. methods. Ones that aren't using our crystals, maybe they're using really cold liquids mm. of, like, uh, xenon or other semiconductors or quantum sort of systems that are really small, but they also have, have ways of seeing dark matter. So if we see it in one of our systems and we can sort of pinpoint some of its properties, uh, we can start probing it with, with our different methods uh, in physics.
1: That's very, very cool indeed. And it's interesting, the reason I was pushing you on the question of, of what do we do with this if we find out about it is because it's as you say it's one of those things that scientists physicists astrophysicists have been sort of they've put an x over it for you know it's at an asterisk for a very very long time like we don't know what it is we don't know where it is we don't know how it is and it affects everything else because we're all made of particles and yeah. this is one of them so i i i think it's easy to forget that it's easy to forget that no this has implications for how we understand everything
2: it's it's how we understand our existence we we look at how we look at the how the, the big bang occurred and how galaxies formed all these millions of years ago or billions of years ago. And, and we can understand from looking at how that occurred, it just wouldn't have happened without dark matter. Wow. There's, there's <laughs> just the gravitational pull of matter by itself just wasn't enough to bring our galaxies together. So without this, this invisible stuff pulling us all together, uh, we wouldn't exist Is as it, we know it. Can, I'm going to ask you to speculate for a moment. Yeah.
1: Is it possible that if we understood a lot more about dark matter that we could use it for things?
2: Great question. I don't. I have. I have no clue. But this is this is the thing about about no blue clues. sky science, right? Um, this would be like going back in, in time maybe two hundred years ago, mm. and, and saying, "Okay, uh, by the way, there's this little tiny particle called an electron. Um, it has a bit of charge, yeah. and it's it's around every atom. Um, guess what you can do with it? You know, internet, computers, everything that we yeah. ever do with our entire lives, everywhere. Um, and that that's that's not a connection you can make." for someone who's just discovered this particle yeah. um, or you're just telling about them. So 200 years' time, who knows, right? It's a, it's a whole new world of particle physics. That is, a, that is
1: a really, a really really good message, I think, there, because it's very easy for people who aren't close to a field of expertise to read something or hear some discovery and go, yeah, and. But what you don't realise is that it, the, the benefit of that may not be then but it's no. going to come and you needed that information. That's extremely exciting news. Michael Muse, thank you so much for joining us on Einstein and GoGo today. Um, and thank you to the School of Physics, of course, for letting you out uh, <laughs> and letting yeah, you buck you, around, actually. And I might just say that there is something utterly delightful to me about doing blue sky research a kilometre away from the blue sky. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> thank, um, you. thank you very much. We'll be back soon with our third guest. Uh, and we'll, uh, I can't wait to have you hear me then.
3: Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
1: Welcome back, everybody. You're with Einstein Go Go on Three RR, and we are joined in the studio today by Rebecca Russell Saunders, who is a science teacher from Wesley College. Welcome back to Einstein Go Go.
4: Hello, welcome. Thank you. Was, or do no, why I said welcome, sorry.
1: Well, because you're welcoming us to your discussion uh, and to your experience, and that's perfectly reasonable of you. I
0: feel welcomed.
1: Well, it's funny, you know, I just realised that you have both got something in common. You've both got back from Queensland recently. Yes. I
0: know.
1: Except that one of you was working.
0: I know.
1: <laughs> one of you was wishing she was still on holiday uh, elsewhere.
0: Um, it was me. It was me, I admitted. Yeah, that's okay.
1: We would have guessed eventually. It's all right. <laughs> um, so tell us, Rebecca, why were you in Queensland for um, work? For work, yeah, on the school holidays too. Oh, I don't know how I don't know how to count that. That seems like you're working overtime, but also not.
4: Okay. No. Oh, look, it was amazing. So I was up there for the Australian Space Design Competition, which I believe has been running for about oh, I want to say fifteen plus years, okay. and so this was my first experience with it. Um, hosted by University of Queensland and took up eight students. Originally a team of nine, one of our students wasn't able to come up with us and we got to meet students from all over Australia and there was about 12 schools and, yeah, so we were there for a weekend of intense... Space design,
1: but that, but that's the well. I don't want to say culmination, but it comes after other work, right? You had to. So, tell us what is the what is the, the competition actually challenging you to do?
4: Yeah, well, so our students in about term three, okay. they had to respond to a request of t- for tender, uh-huh. and they put together their bid. So they learned how to really do a bid proposal and so they had to create a design for a settlement and in that they had to obviously create the design using physics to overcome the elements in which humans would be exposed to whilst in space. They also had to look at human elements, how would they sustain life on that settlement Um, so keeping in mind that we can't necessarily just drive down to the supermarket for food whilst in space. So they had to deal with that. They also had to look at automation, and they had to cost it as well. Oh, wow. And so there was a lot of zeros involved, (laughs) and I think even for the boys they were just, like, blown away by just how much this was going to cost.
1: But presumably they had to go through that process and be... One of the best, yeah, and and that's judged on all those things. I take it the the logic involved, the the research that's done, the cost was was keeping costs down something they were interested in seeing.
4: Um, Interesting that was not so much about the it had to be a reasonable cost, and so that um, again be able to create the best station at a. Reasonable cost of <laughs> trillions
1: and trillions of dollars. <laughs> what's a reasonable cost for a, for a space station? Got that in station? my pocket, right? Yeah, now. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked you. Um, <laughs> uh, that's intriguing. So, in the however many years it's been of, of the competition, have they changed what the challenge is?
4: Yeah. So. Each year they have a different challenge. This year, though, we looked at, um, for the finals, they were looking at landing on an asteroid. And they had used um, the Atlas space settlement in an earlier competition. However, there were elements of difference as far as what year we were designing in. So we were in 2059 for last weekend.
1: I was going to ask you about that too. So that, that involves a certain level of either educated extrapolation or just fantasizing. Yeah. Um, h- how do the students go about? deciding what are we going to include in 2059 and what is just not a thing.
4: Yeah. So they were given like, I guess, an information booklet about the services and the subcontractors they had available to them (laughs) and sort of where we were sort of predicting ourselves to be by 2059. Like how are we using the moon as um, a site where we could store materials and then, you know, access from there again so that that drive to that supermarket's not quite so far away. And so they were given predictions of where we're expecting to be we also had an opportunity to work with a range of mentors that are aeronautical engineers nice. um, which was just amazing a lot of them work for defense so what we learned about their job pretty much ended at I'm working for defense and then, <laughs> okay uh, however they were able to say to the students oh that's great thinking uh, but we're probably not going to be there yet by 2059.
0: I can just see that the whole class has Armageddon as a mandatory <laughs> well, watch
1: uh, watch before this project. I, I think that's very reasonable. I that's interesting actually because that I was going to ask if there's any scope or any forgiveness for a team just putting something in that there's no evidence for but they reckon might happen.
4: Oh, good question. I'm not sure. I mean, most of the time from what I could see it was realistic. Like yeah. it was sort of I guess sort of Science fiction sort of coming to actuality, and that's,
1: yeah, that's that's why I, I, that's why it occurs to me because when you're talking to um, to people who are experts in the field, you get that really interesting balance of I know stuff you don't know, so yeah. I can tell you how this is going to roll, but I've also got a vision yeah. of what could happen, yeah, and that's a really that's a very interesting place to be playing. I think I think it's a great thing for, uh, for students to have that balance because it's giving them reality. Absolutely. But it's also giving them the scope to imagine.
4: Yeah, and so they were rewarded for creativity. They okay. wanted them to think outside of the box and sort of, I guess, where we're at and stretch it a bit. But again, like you were sort of saying, like, it can't... <laughs> be total fantasy we can't teleport so that was off no. the
0: table i don't know i feel like all science fiction fans have a natural you know step ahead already just from you know reading books and watching the tv shows That's, absolutely that would be me just you know, al- i i just want to sign up for this right now
1: but also this is i mean this is the uh, the nature of, of research at all you, you 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 do a thing um you achieve whatever it is you find whatever knowledge it is and sometimes everything gets much faster after that point Absolutely. Honestly, it gets much slower after that point, too. Where you kind of get stuck on a, on a point. So I guess there's a level of acceptable speculation that, I, that the students must have. Now, I, I went I went researching this competition. Um, I'm too old. Oh, no. <laughs> By an order of magnitude almost. <laughs> too old to join. However, I did notice one thing that they mentioned, but it wasn't explained very well, and I'm interested in it. The students start work at 8.30 in the morning. Uh-huh. And then they finish the following day. Mm-hmm. Is it all through the night? Technically, no.
0: (laughs) I love that answer. It depends. It
4: depends. Look, sitting back and watching, I must say, I'll be honest, I've never felt more redundant in my life in that these kids just took over and did their thing and we sort of sat back and watched and just watching the human behaviour when under that much stress and watching them become tired and have some little trust issues because we're working mm. in the case of Wesley we're working with two other schools from Queensland we didn't know the, these people yeah, of and so some trust issues sort of came into play and then we got into the Manic stage of tiredness. (laughs) Oh, no. So it was like
0: a human experiment at this
1: stage, right? We're going to find out it is one day. (laughs) Seriously, someone's doing a PhD on it, I'm sure.
4: And so as teachers, that was a time for us to step in and sort of say, "Mm, now is the time for us to actually have a rest. And so we got them together because, again, they had to set up a company. So we had CEOs and general managers and all those sorts of things. And so we called the CEO over and said, now's the time – to maybe get the group together, identify what are our main concerns at this point in time of the night, and can we go home and go to bed? I think it might have also come personally because we were really tired.
1: I I feel like there's an influence (laughs) there, yeah.
4: And so some of the kids did work through the night in their room because we were also staying on campus, so they got to have a what is it like to live on campus awesome. experience, which was fantastic. Interesting a side note, the food was the same as what it was when I was at Ormond College <laughs> 30 years ago.
1: And I, and I broke, kind of. Uh,
4: absolutely, why fix it? So some of the students did work through the night and some of them took our advice and slept and came back refreshed and submitted at 3 p.m. So,
1: Oh, wow.
0: I feel like this is very close to real-life scenarios yeah, at this stage. It, yeah. so-
1: it sounds yeah. very real to me. Yeah.
0: So- I know. I get, like, PTSD from this.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm I mean, in real a good way, but i sorry, sorry to trigger you. Uh, <laughs> did, um, what, ha- what happens now? Did, I mean, is there more or is it finished and, 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 and did they win?
4: <sighs> we didn't win, unfortunately. Jutted However, I think, I know this is going to sound like a cliché, they learnt... So much from the experience and such a rewarding experience as a teacher to watch these students grow and develop in 36 hours, Mm. realistically. Um, And so the team that did win, they will go and represent Australia in, I think it's Arizona in July.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What's, What's in Arizona?
4: So they will have an international competition. Oh, my goodness. So... We were sort of the Australian leg, I guess, or arm of it. And so there's an Indian. There'll be an Indian winner, um, a China winner, and in America they have four regions. So there'll be four. Of course, (laughs) it's the centre (laughs) of the universe, right? That's what they think. (laughs) And also European.
1: Can I just say hello to all of our United States-based listeners? Uh, we love you dearly. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Uh, that is extremely exciting. Okay, so uh, uh, let me just ask you this as a, as a wrap-up question, because as you say, um, a really insightful thing for you as a teacher, a wonderful experience to, to, to see, and, and I can sense the excitement in, in watching their, their development. Are you going to do it again?
4: Oh, I would go in a heartbeat.
1: And, and is the school backing you on that? No pressure? <laughs>
4: No pressure. It'll be interesting to see. We put it out to the students and so we will see whether they want sure. to participate. One thing I would hopefully like to see us change is that we really open it up to our year nine students and encourage them so that we can almost have a succession plan. And so yeah. the schools that were that have been, you know, in the finals, like this is like the tenth year in the finals sort of thing, had succession plans and so they had a wow. real cross age group so that when they came and it what, wasn't the first time. It's like
0: coaching sessions almost. Yeah. I well, yeah.
4: It. Yeah. What ages are we looking at here? So, Year 9 to Year 12 is okay. what it's open okay. for. So, we had students so who were going into Year 10, obviously, this year, yep. and then students who were going off to uni and everything in between. It I'm was blown wonderful. away by
0: these kids, honestly. Yeah. They're so yeah. smart. Like, if I think back what I did in Year 9 to 12, you would not know. Oh, not this. <laughs>
1: You didn't know me either. And if there was a competition like that, I, I suspect I wouldn't have been selected for it. Um, and certainly not more than once, that's for sure, because I would have been one of those kids. Uh, somewhere in, overnight, I would have been, yeah.
0: Me too. I was like, this is my PTSD. I would be like, yeah, we can't go to bed until we're done.
1: Either I, I would have woken up at three in the morning and realised I hadn't contributed anything and felt bad about it, like i'm sure i'm sure that would have sure that wouldn't happen with your students but that's what i would have been like um and just checking it is the australian space design competition i asked that because i'm thinking if anyone else is out there with students or other teachers or other schools you know it sounds like it's well worth getting into
4: go for it i can't recommend it enough
1: very exciting well uh rebecca russell saw thank you very much for joining us again thank you very much for taking us inside what sounds like uh it sounds like a a hell of a journey for everybody involved, actually. But, and congratulations for getting as close as you did and getting to the finals and getting to Queensland for work. It was great. It was <laughs> yeah. humid, but great. <laughs> yes. Splendid. Excellent. And I wanted, to just, I wanted to tell you a story about something in the last couple of minutes, if I can do it Go quickly. It. So I read a science story... Uh, Good on
0: you, Dr. Chris. Yeah,
1: and I, hey, I am (laughs) nothing if not not Throwing the
0: shade already in 2024, man. Yeah,
1: thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, see, here's the thing. It it was, I read it, but I immediately felt ignorant twice. Uh, Oh, no. Gigantopithecus black eye.
0: That's a word I've never heard.
1: Yes, I feel less stupid. Thank you. Um, these were massive apes. All right. yeah, they lived between 2 million and 300,000 years ago. Um, they were first identified from molar teeth in the 30s. Uh, and then they found mandibles in China. Uh, and basically, by extrapolating from the teeth and the jaws, they reckon these these are big. They're basically like massive orangutans, like 200 to 300 kilo things. Painting but them the into thing.
0: picture, yeah. Yep. But here's
1: the thing. That's very, very speculative because all they've got is some bits of jaw and some they have nothing else so
0: no bones no nothing else beyond wow.
1: that so I'm going oh that's interesting la 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 But then there's the ignorance just, well this is ignorance part two little throwaway line saying um, because uh, many of the bones are presumed to have been consumed by porcupines full stop And then we move on with the story, and I'm like, "Stop the presses!"
0: Porcupines, the ones, yeah.
1: But even, even, even just just picture one rogue porcupine with those massive bones. Thank you. Yeah. So I did some research. Here's the thing, right? (laughs) Uh, Here's where it takes me to. Porcupines. What do you think porcupines eat? Don't know. Have a best and
0: Animals, I guess. Well, I get, apparently animal parts, but I was, I was thinking <laughs> plants and flowers and, you know, all the nice things. Right.
1: Probably not orangutan. Yeah. yeah. So they do. They eat roots. They eat tubers like potatoes and stuff. Um, they'll eat bark, fallen fruits, uh, tropical seeds. They occasionally eat carrion, a bit of roadkill, mm-hmm. the odd insect maybe. But they are also voracious consumers of bones. Wow. Yes, it's a thing called uh, osteo- osteophagy, by the way, the eating of bones, um, and it helps give them the minerals they need to grow. their quills. Wow. they got pointy quills. Yeah. So. How, how,
0: how do they, like, I, I'm, I'm just imagining this comic scenario of this tiny little porcupine, you know, <laughs> with this, like, oversized orangutan bone. Like, how? I don't
1: know. I just think, if they gather them. They actually gather them and hoard them in their underground dens. I
0: love porcupines
1: from I, this moment forward. Yeah, me too. I had that moment of, I, I, first I love giant orangutan, now I love porcupines and giant orangutan. Yeah, so there you go. There's um, there's Love something it. that, I, something that I've that. learned recently. Totally my pleasure. Um, look, it's been Einstein go Go. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Dr Susie. Thank you, Dr Chris. Thank you, Rachel, for pushing our buttons. Thank you, Liv, for pushing your phone with a speed that makes me uncomfortable, actually. You're going to be arthritic one day from pushing Twitter that, that rapidly. Um, and remember, as Dr Shane always tells us, science is everywhere, even when Dr Shane isn't. Bye for now.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.